right, ready to get started? Uh, not quite. I have a few questions for you before we begin. Yes. Um, now, I, I, why? Well, first of all, what do you want to talk? To, what do you want to talk about? Like, what kind of conversation do you want to have? What brought you to want to have me on your show? What? Okay. So what I really liked about you is like you have a lot of good energy that mm-hmm. is like very resonant. And also uh, you sound like you have a good story to tell about your experience of like your life with music or your life with like the general area or living in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point of my podcast was not only to reach out to those who are like usually like musicians or like artists, but to also reach out to others who have like a just like a good like sense of um articulation with how they speak um but also just i feel like your experience is valuable to share like just some from stuff that you've been like telling me like Mm -hmm. you have a really good insight of how you view everything and so it's also meant to um kind of enlighten whoever is listening to but also Mm kind of give something a little bit different to the table as well also you're into like nerdy things as well (laughs) and that's like a big and i'm also very handsome did you get that (laughs) he got the gray beard (laughs) the gray beard and the (laughs) the nice uh the nicely kept the nicely kept hair which is you caught me on a good good week for that because i only go to the barber shop about once a month so (laughs) yeah um but (laughs) yeah the time i'm perfectly content to look like fucking sasquatch It keeps people. It keeps people away from me, which is my general preferred mode of being. So, and I can cover it up easily enough with a hat when I am required to be nice to people. Yeah, um, but you obviously have a passion. Like mm-hmm. you, you play magic, so that's something that is something that I like to talk to other uh, people about, or like comics or whatnot. Uh, because I also found with um, people who enjoy magic or like gaming, there is a there is a, a side of tech of intelligence that is correlation to that um so whether if the intelligence is like um you know objective like book smart or whatever the case or like just money smart or just like being very inclined to society like i think those are some things that i like about my podcast is Mm -hmm. it's able to see different sides of people yeah um so yeah for you specifically again you're very i keep running into you on accident and then i realized that you're also uh danny's roommate and Mm -hmm. so that was also pretty cool so you're kind of within like the six degrees of separation um and it's always been a good time hanging out with you like you you play games uh you're super stoked about the music scene um again you exert a lot of good energy so um i feel like it's these are like all important things part of of who i look for to like when i'm doing this podcast awesome Um, let's just start off with some basics, some basic interviews or interview questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where did you, like, where are you from originally? Did you grow up in the Bay Area or? I have lived in the Bay Area my entire life. Okay. Uh, I was born in San Francisco. I did not live there. Uh, I lived in Redwood City, Mm -hmm. uh, but not for, but only until about the age of 10 and then I 
moved to Fremont, or not to Fremont, I moved to Newark, okay. the East Bay, uh, and lived in Newark and then in Fremont when I moved out of my family's house to San Jose in 2001, and I've been here uh, ever since. Okay. Yeah, um, and then just since it sounds like since you've been here this whole time, um, I'm sure you've seen like the shift of like uh, technology growing, the tech the tech community is growing. Um, so that's also something I kind of want to talk about. Like, what was your what was your perspective when you were seeing all of this? Uh, what was it like before all of that hit for you? Well, yeah, as we were talking about before we started recording, <clears throat> you know, I I celebrated my 40th birthday. Last year, uh, I have seen the ascendance mm-hmm. of the internet in its latter day stages from very, you know, humble origins with things like AOL, you know, version 2.0, which <laughs> we were running on like Windows 3.1, mm-hmm. and, uh, I was spending all my days in the like Star Wars geek forums mm-hmm. uh, rather than talking to regular real people because it was a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way through to now where sites like Facebook are allowing introverts world- worldwide to mm-hmm. do the same thing on a historically unprecedented scale uh, in ways that are good, bad, and extraordinarily ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a fascinating experience to watch the way that technology has um, manifested in our lives and the way that it's inserted itself in so many ways between uh, our like between ourselves and uh, reality mm-hmm. and uh, how increasingly impermeable that's becoming in ways that, God, even five or six years ago were, you know, completely unimaginable. And, uh, you know, I remember growing up and reading books like Neuromancer by William Gibson and mm-hmm. uh, playing, you know, playing games like Shadowrun with my friends instead <laughs> of D&D because the sci-fi shit was cool or yeah. like Cyberpunk 2020, which is like all the same shit. And uh, reading like Phil K. Dick novels and stuff like that, watching Blade Runner and being like shit, man, that looks like a crazy-ass world. Like, I can't wait for things like that to become a reality. And now they are. Yeah. They really are. And Not as grungy, but it's getting there. But it's only because we're in the beginning of it. Right. You know, the 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 stuff like, you know, I mean, take, for example, there was like, cyber, what was it, Cyberpunk 2030. That's, I mm-hmm. think it was. Or it's only 10 years from now. And I look at, like, some of that artwork, you can go dig it up online, and, you know, some of the stuff, there's... It's arguably a bit more neon than exists now, but <laughs> other than that, I mean, it's not. Some of the shit's not that far off. It's right. a little, it's a, a little more heavily stylized. But in terms of some of the basic kind of nuts and bolts, when you talk about the, you know, again that that intersection of of the virtual world between ourselves and the physical one, mm-hmm. uh, and the effect that that's had and on the um, on people's lives is becoming fully realized you know mm-hmm. um, and we're not like we're not that far from the sort of grunginess of that mm-hmm. to set in we're still in the we're in the phase I think right now with internet with the internet and uh, digital technologies of its like that is still 
very new. Mm-hmm. Uh, the internet as we know it today is maybe 10 years old. Uh, yeah. The internet period is, uh, as a concept, is not more than maybe 40. So that in the in the, the span of history, that's hardly a blip. And yeah. we've yet to see what we can really do with the technology that we are creating and that mm-hmm. is being developed. And we've always been able to develop tools that are far more powerful and far more complex than our ability to control or legislate them right. or predict what they can or will do mm-hmm. or can or will be done with them in the right. hands of other people. <laughs> uh, and when we start talking, when you start talking about things like machine learning mm-hmm. and neural networks and these things that are being developed and how this is like sort of the bleeding edge of, of, of uh, internet technology and virtual technology, <clears throat> these things are infinitely more complex than we can even hope mm-hmm. to govern or even begin to navigate. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you said to govern because I noticed just like how, in my perspective, like I've been kind of running around with like technology since like, I don't know, when, like you mentioned like AOL, like AOL was out and I wanted to get my hands on it as a young kid. But also this is when I was introduced to video games, uh, like the 64 and uh the Super Nintendo and also like Sega or Dreamcast where I've been so conditioned to like a bunch of like, you know, not media, but just like a screen time is what I want to call it. Just a lot of screen time where I found another like avenue, which was AOL, um, that for me, it was just a playground. It wasn't like a way to find information. It wasn't a way to like really utilize it. It was more so in means to socialize and to act like a little brat, <laughs> like on chat rooms and whatnot. Right. So I'm but... not gonna pretend I didn't do a ton of the same. <laughs> okay, I've been, a, I've been a troll since way back. All right, this isn't this isn't new to me at all. An indie troll. <laughs> yeah, all the way back to like you know the pre, I mean the to the old like. BBS days and shit. When yeah. We were like when we were logging in through you know like baud rate servers. Yeah. Uh, through your phone line. You know yeah. what I mean. But and it would take like ten minutes to send one comment, but the way that that person's oh God, face would fucking that was explode. So slow. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes it was like that, but then just the 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 fucking keyboard mashing and response that you would get, you know, another half an hour later was fucking worth it every time. Yeah. So now with the internet, now there's a lot of like comparison to where it just felt like a playground like a bunch of just kids just acting like dumbasses it's now like it's not the same thing but now people are getting more clever with like hacking into things and just finding secret information and exploiting other people and using it as like timestamps of when things are being said and then using it as weaponizing it to like really ruin reputations of like you know political leaders or celebrities so it's it's interesting where it's like it's really hard to govern i'm just really like kind of taking that term and running with it because it is really hard to um regulate it you know because you can do as all this stuff and sure you might get caught depending on how illegal what you're doing um but it is really hard to like police it um and to just like keep in check with people um so do you feel i guess what i was what i'm trying to run with that do you feel it's providing another weird sense of freedom or do you think um do you think there's a different way to ever like find a way to kind of police it well that's like a two-part question yeah and just go ahead and render around it like i i'm still kind of rendering around it what i'm trying to get to <laughs> and, you know, I, and i think i think i know what you're i think i know what you're trying to get at and mm-hmm. um 
it has always been the case that technology has always outpaced its ability to be legislated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we cannot predict, like I said before, we can't predict the results of what new technologies will bring and the the paradigm shifts that they will bring about. Um, Just think of something like the nuclear bomb, for example, Mm -hmm. and how the nuclear bomb changed the world and changed our culture in ways that are irrevocable. Mm Mm-hmm. Simply because of a uh, simply because we 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 built a bomb that was big enough, mm-hmm. and then started an arms race over it mm-hmm. that like that caused people to get really spooked, and that's it. And it, but it changed it changed everything, and the internet is doing the same thing. And from the beginning, it's it too has outpaced its ability to be legislated, and it's growing and maturing faster than our legislature legislators can understand i you know the for a long time this stuff has been created and 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 sold and distributed primarily by mm-hmm. young white men and then governed by old white men mm-hmm. every once in a while those young white men then become old white men and they <laughs> become the gatekeepers of the thing that they created and know how to legislate and give back in such a way as to reinforce those concepts Okay. And that creates a what it what it, it leads to creating a lot of times is these sort of walled garden environments mm-hmm. like Facebook, like Twitter, these social media. This this I think is one of the 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 one of the reasons why social media is really developed in the way that it has is because ultimately the internet really has been about bringing people together, mm-hmm. you know, about creating communication, about creating community, mm-hmm. about helping people to be able to, and to, to, to create knowledge sharing, right. resource sharing and all that stuff. I mean, these are very noble intentions, but these, and noble ideals, but these are very noble and inten- uh, noble intentions and ideals that were created by, uh, again, like a bunch of young white, predominantly libertarian men. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing at the end of the day, is the internet is kind of a libertarian construct. It's manifest destiny with what initially felt like an unlimited landscape mm-hmm. that these same people now, 20, 30 years later, have begun to build, finally build a fence around. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is completely artificial. They figured out how to build an artificial fence to create a giant walled garden from which no one can roam outside. Right. And that may not have necessarily been the intent, but that's certainly been the byproduct. Okay. And within that, within there, is there a sense of freedom? Yeah. Because this walled garden is huge. It's, it's enormous. Facebook is home to over a billion people. Twitter is home to over a billion people. Yeah. And they can continue to add unlimited amounts of users. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you try to compete in any meaningful way to create a new garden outside of the plot that they give you, mm-hmm. you, the, you will find the odds to be incredibly stacked against you. And the that... It is virtually impossible to do so without access to their resources and through the constraints that those resources provide okay. and mandate. Now, you know, again, is this is this freedom? No, but the internet is not free. Mm-hmm. 
Like, you know, it's, it's like a good friend of mine once said, if you're interacting with something where there is no product mm-hmm. or no price that you can perceive, then that means you're the product, mm-hmm. right? And so we are not free on the internet. There is an exchange that takes place there. We give up our, we give up our identity mm-hmm. in order to create an identity somewhere else. Okay. Because that's what we're doing when we get on the online. We're creating an identity. Mm-hmm. We're, 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 and, and we're transferring our identity and then also acting to create it as well. We can, re- we can recreate ourselves. And there are people who take incredible advantage of this, you know, again, you know, for good or for ill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so is there freedom in that? Yes, because when you go online, you can re-identify yourself as whatever you want. But you don't get to do it wherever you want. Right. Sorry, yeah. I just immediately thought of catfishing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's a just perfect like example. The, catfishing, the... identity theft, but then also think of like internet trolls yeah. or uh, like trans people is also, you know, trans people have an unprecedented ability to be able to reinvent themselves in the digital age that they, that, that, that they, they would have, would have given the right arm for mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And that's a very powerful act of reinvention. But again, there's a there's an exchange involved. This is mm-hmm. this is a marketplace. The internet is built on this concept of the bazaar, mm-hmm. right? Like where it's a marketplace of ideas, it's a marketplace of information, and everything is currency. Mm-hmm. So like, if you don't have some sort of currency that you can provide, or if you don't have enough of it, mm-hmm. then you're only going to be able to get so far, right? Okay. Now. <clears throat> The, the spaces are wide open and the connections are endless and limitless, but when it comes to being able to actually forge new territory mm-hmm. in the world of the internet, it's next to impossible at this point without removing a great many of the sort of, you know, capitalistic and libertarian constructs that have undergirded it from the very beginning. And that's not something I think that is ever going to be possible. And that's that fully realized vision of this like cyberpunk world sort of come to life that people, that people sort of have idealized and idolized in like dystopian literature and stuff in the future. Now Mm -hmm. it's, it's the corporatocracy taking over and dominating life. It's not, if you go back and you look at these, these stories, it's weak governments and powerful corporations that govern the, that govern the aspects of everyday life and govern these virtual spaces. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where we're at today. Yeah. You know, and that's not about to ch- that's not about to change anytime soon. So we have to be able to start to figure out as a society how to best work within those constructs to take the most advantage of them. Yeah. They give us a lot of tools, but they tell us to treat the tools like toys. Right. And so folks like you and I who mm-hmm. don't do that have a very, very rough time because the, the, the tools have been treated like toys for so long that they've been able to hamper the ways that they can actually be fully realized as tools without having to pump a lot more money in. You can, like, make the technology really cheap, but then you make, like, the portals of access really, really expensive. Okay. Right? And, like, that's where we're at. Like, you have this beautiful microphone that costs <laughs> you maybe, like, a 100 bucks and, like, this great MacBook that, you know, probably cost you, like, a few hundred bucks or something, you know, here and there. Maybe you got it used or maybe you got it new for, like, $1,100 or something like that. Right. It's really nice and that's awesome, but it's, like, does that give you the power of, like, a marketing and VR team that can help you get the page ranking and the search indexing and all the things that you need to get mm-hmm. every single episode of your show out? to like 100,000 people at a time. Not at all. No, that's where we're at now. Marketing and advertising, which is Mm -hmm. the rise of all that corporate influence is now what drives all of this. And it's money that undergirds it. And it was always going to be because 
the people who were looking to make this work when it really started to blossom were looking to figure out how to do so in ways that could turn a profit so they didn't have to get off their couch. Right. That's the Gen X crowd that did that, you know, and we thought we were so revolutionary, and we were, but we were doing it out of, like, a fundamental <laughs> aspect of, like, checking out of society in a way that allowed us to sort of be lazy. And to elaborate being, like, we're, <laughs> yeah. uh, you're, which generation are you addressing? Uh, Generation X. Okay. So Generation X is really the one who's responsible for like the creation of the internet as we know it today and like the first internet boom and everything like that, right? And that was a bunch of guys like that I knew who were all for anywhere from like 18 to 25 mm-hmm. when I was about... 15 or 16 mm-hmm. these you know juniors and seniors in high school and like couple you know early college year kids like in this area are the guys that all grew up you know to be like peter Thiel from paypal and ebay mm-hmm. and folks like that you know jack dorsey and from twitter you yeah. know uh mark zuckerberg who you know who built facebook basically as a way to try to get laid <laughs> you know so that he didn't have to like go out on real dates because the guy was a fucking nerd <laughs> you know, and and out of that, they figured out very quickly that they could monetize this stuff without having to get a real job. Mm-hmm. And those become these the underlying principles then of of how to get to to have a proper internet experience is by monetizing everything you do. Right. And that's and that's, that's not what we are. So, what's fun about that is like that's not something that's really like told or promoted to people who are learning how to build their own like foundations or their own empire. Like no one tells you like oh something that you're passionate about or something that you're just probably doing on accident can be monetized. Yeah. Well, they um, don't have to. Well, and that's the difference for that's... me. I guess in my experience, it's always been like hush hush. Like mm-hmm. follow your passion, but underlying that like little mm-hmm. silver lining is like also oh, tough. Well, the you difference, know. well, and that's exactly the what I'm talking about. The difference, the, the difference in our dystopia is the difference between compulsion and coercion. Mm-hmm. We're not being coerced into anything. Mm-hmm. Nobody's nobody's forcing anybody to get on Facebook. Nobody's mm-hmm. forcing everybody to have a Twitter. It's not, you know, um, nobody's forcing anybody to have a podcast or to. Uh, you know, become a, a music producer mm-hmm. or to do anything. Nobody's forcing anybody to play with any of these toys right. that are that are so easily cheap. They don't have to. Mm-hmm. The internet has been set up in such a way because it is a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Marketplaces don't work on coercion. They mm-hmm. work on compulsion. They work on preying on your on on preying on your impulses mm-hmm. and uh, specifically ones that keep you feeling alienated and how to alleviate that alienation okay uh, and that's that's what the whole that's what all of this stuff is sort of predicated on so when it's like this whole idea of like oh follow your passion but don't forget mm-hmm. to make money doing it is like it's this insertion of the commodification so that you buy the technology and then access the service so mm-hmm. that you pay the fees and that's mm-hmm. how they continue to make the money. You notice that like all of these creative tools and things like that, everything is starting to move increasingly towards the cloud mm-hmm. and towards sharing and then paying for monthly access right. as opposed to paying for services a la carte. Right. This is... this is. I noticed that recently with mm-hmm. programs like Adobe. 
Um, Adobe's a perfect example. Yeah, uh, Sibelius just recently did something like that, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, instead of just paying it as like a one-time payment and you're done, they're like, use our service for X amount of money per month. And me being a musician and using Notation software, I'm like, that's fucking funny. I'm not going to do that. Because why would I pay X amount of money per month when I can just have the program? But now, like, there's a lot of companies who are going into the like, oh, pay us per month. So that way they're getting more money out of the clients or basically the people who want to use their program. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I have noticed that shift. Um, it's something that I feel like me as a user is, I definitely don't like that. Um, this is more of that walled garden action that I was talking about in effect. This is like right. the next, this is like the next phase of it. You know, the hardware is getting cheaper and cheaper and the software is getting cheaper and cheaper mm-hmm. as well to develop. So mm-hmm. The pricing of it, the pricing of it continues to go down. So what's the way, what's the best way that can you can continue to monetize it? Mm -hmm. Well, if there's infinite space on the internet for storage Mm -hmm. that can be, that can be monetized, then you start to convert everything towards the question of access and the speed and the bandwidth connection that we have now for internet is more than capable of being able to do that where you can render these huge complex programs online Mm -hmm. now through uh, through shared like net you know networking services of you know through storage and access and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, you can run programs like that now where you couldn't mm-hmm. ten years ago, mm-hmm. and so that's enabling these companies to be able to pull all the physical software off the shelves now mm-hmm. and replace it with everything virtual mm-hmm. and everything being accessed through their sales portals. Right, and this is one of the one of the things about this is that it's this is inevitable. At this point, we sign. Yeah. We have already signed away our rights to hardware, more or less, because ultimately, software from the very beginning has always been a question of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. You are paying to use a service when you buy physical software. You are not paying for a f- actual copy of the product that is permanently yours. So you still are still subject to their guidelines mm-hmm. of usage and restricted to it, which is that's why piracy. Uh, laws exist and things mm-hmm. because you're paying for access to intellectual property, right. uh, not to uh, not to permanent access to single use mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. So right. this gives them the power to do this, and there's no way that law is going to change. And in certain sense, I don't know if I even would necessarily <laughs> want it to because I want my ideas mm-hmm. to be my intellectual property too. Right. Right. And I imagine you do as well, mm-hmm. so that I have the potential to monetize them just like you do. Yeah. You, do, you do your ideas. Yeah. And I think just me it's being... Just a, they're, already, they're already so far ahead of us in that game yeah. because, they've, because of the successes that they've had that mm-hmm. they now control that market and have such a lead on folks like you and I that, it's again, it's going to be next to impossible to do anything without going through their... Without going through them. They are the gatekeepers. Right. Okay, so then there's the other side of it. So, or not another side of it, but this is like a different perspective that I've seen of it as of like, me again, going back to the previous thing, trying to avoid paying monthly for certain things. And again, totally appreciate services that are being provided, right? Um, I'm glad that I have access to it. I'm glad that I have an opportunity to pay whatever I need to use based off of what I grab off of the internet. Um, but then... By having a monthly fee, um, it also kind of divides users based off of who has access to it, right? So um, I do kind of get a sense of that there might be a sense of like classism 
Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, like, you know, college students, right? College students who, as of recently, you know, like, there's reports of, like, homelessness. Uh, uh, students who are hardly getting by. Students who are trying to thrive on their scholarships. But they have to buy services um, to pass their classes, essentially. Students who are going into tech will probably have to pay for certain services to pass their classes. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if they can't pay for their services on the regular or get a discount through their school, which I mean, most places do, like Adobe does that great, like, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but fortunately Adobe does that. But, you know, how long are they going to keep that up before they're like, oh, maybe I can still try to bring some money out of these kids. Then it really makes it difficult for students to really try to achieve their goals. Now, now I'm thinking of students who don't want to go to college to avoid all that and still trying to do the same thing and also provide and also like giving their limitations of getting those services as well. So they'll never get to thrive in the tech world, which is also the thing that they need to somehow adapt to to get a, a job that they can thrive on, essentially. Absolutely. It's... um. No, that's a very that's a very good point. The um, it really comes down to <clears throat> questions of privilege, mm -hmm. right? And how when you when you continue to commodify, oh excuse me, when you continue to commodify things like access to products and services mm -hmm. through any sort of means, whether it's a la carte or through monthly fees. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to stratify access mm -hmm. to it, right? You're going to create people who can access, who people who can afford it, and people who can't. Mm -hmm. And you know whether they're in school or whether they're not in school or whatever, you know, there are privileges that that are going to be afforded, you know, for certain things like this when you go to school. Like when you talk, like we said, like Adobe provides access to. Um, the what is it? Adobe CS is it called now? Yes, yes. For college yeah. students and things like that, like that's great, right? Uh, for the rest of us, however, who might want to use such a program or such a service, uh, there's a considerable fees that are that are going to start to rack up, and uh, yeah. you know, and I don't know how it's working now, but I seem to recall that for a time, Adobe CS charged fees based on the software, individual pieces of software that you wished to mm -hmm. use, which is. Which was which is great, but I think now you pay access you pay for access to everything, right? Uh, yeah, there. Uh, like the, whether you want it or not. Yeah, I used it for a while because I was using a lot of like the editorial stuff, mm -hmm. like you know, Illustrator, Photoshop, yeah. um, and just out of curiosity, I I just had the other services available just in case. Mm -hmm. um, but I had to pay forty bucks a month for it, and then you know, just trying to budget and yeah. break down stuff, especially if we're living out in this area. That's absurd. I can't I can't keep up, so I have to find. I have to get creative, which is really good about like, now that you talk about Generation X, you're now we're talking to someone who's a millennial. We have to improvise and use a sense of creativity to avoid all that. Because it's not that we don't wanna pay that money, we just don't have any means to pay that money because the jobs that we're getting that we're getting right. don't supplement us that. So um, I think that's just something that I just thought was very interesting um, because again, sometimes I just feel left out for not having access to it. But Absolutely. if I'm able to improvise past that, then it sounds like I just don't need it. And there's one in this whole conversation. Oh, that and by the way, sorry Adobe, we're not shit talking you. <laughs> 
some reason you hear or like the algorithms go through here. I do appreciate your guys' products. Um, but again, we're just kind of just addressing some of the different sides to like, you know, having Adobe a subscription. A, Adobe makes a great product, but I'm not here pretending that they aren't part of the problem that we've been right. discussing yeah. in terms of uh, paying for access and how. Okay. Uh, the... The, the, the one thing that we haven't been talking about in this conversation is okay. a very, there's a very important flip side to all of this, which is the open source community. Okay. And the open source community is everything that, in my estimation, the not just the internet, but digital technology more broadly mm -hmm. uh, and even potentially other intellectual properties beyond that should be treated. Mm -hmm. It has to do with access to things in the commons mm -hmm. and how you share, uh, particularly when you're talking about um, the, when you're talking about not just the internet, but software and applications, mm -hmm. um, giving people access to your code. Right. And sharing your code and making your code public and free to access and duplicate and modify um, and creating a community of developers and tinkerers and builders who are volunteers. Mm -hmm. And what that does for your products that are being created, how it brings your community together mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, and and how it sort of it's it's the. um Like I said, it, for me, it's like it's the way that things should be done. And uh, for the open source community, the open source like software community in particular mm -hmm. has been around for nearly as long as like modern computer programming, you know, mm -hmm. since the since the 80s, when you talk about the development of things like uh, Linux and the open source kernel. The, mm -hmm. um, <coughs> From there on, there has always been an active community that has been developed and uh, exists worldwide now. And many of mm -hmm. the uh, the 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 beautiful and ironic thing about so many of the companies that we love today, who mandate that we pay so much money mm -hmm. for their access or their services or trade so much of our information for their products and their services mm -hmm. is that those companies are built on the very open source technology that they continue to divert our attention away from as often as possible so mm -hmm. that uh, we uh, can be ignorant of its existence. Mm -hmm. It's the one thing that can really emancipate people, I think, on the internet Mm -hmm. is open source technology. Uh, as we move further and further into the Internet of Things, and as digital technology continues to insert itself into everyday life, we're going to need to have more of a regular and everyday understanding mm -hmm. of uh, things like how to crack open the fucking boombox like you did when you were a kid to figure yeah. out how the circuit boards and shit work. Yeah. Because everything is going to be about collecting information and data and exchange and... Uh, and advertising you in another space. Right. No, that makes sense. I did that if as you a kid. Have, <laughs> if you want to have any kind of control over that, mm -hmm. you know, the open source tech, open source community is like the best place to start. Um, there's already, you know, all man people have already taken and created all manner of programs that duplicate 
you know, you can find some sort of open source program for just about anything that there is that you want to do uh, at this point. When I was producing, <clears throat> I've been a, a Linux user for years, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was producing my podcast, I was doing everything with uh, free and open source software using Ubuntu Studio mm-hmm. uh, and a program called Ordor. Mm-hmm. And using a great program called Audacity, which mm-hmm. is uh, one of the most wonderful editing tools I've ever I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me for audio. Yeah. Um, and a handful of other applications like that too that are powerful and revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for when you want to talk about things like what Adobe does, you know, there's a great program called GIMP that comes bundled with just about every version of Linux that you find. It's called mm-hmm. Graphics. Uh, Graphics Image Manipulation Program, mm-hmm. or something to that effect. It's called GIMP, and it's basically okay. Photoshop and Illustrator rolled into one. It's free. Oh. Because nice. a bunch of people got together, a bunch of graphic designers and illustrators and, uh, and publishers and things got together with a bunch of software engineers and yeah. decided, hey, we need a tool that can do these things that we can then distribute and not have to pay for and this is where it closes the gap with those who don't have the access to these privileged programs yeah exactly so and i have noticed that like audacity i've used before um i haven't used gimp but i used like something along the lines of like editing tools and whatnot on like photo bucket Mm. which was like an old like, I, I don't know how popular and used that they are used, but I used to use that a lot as a kid. Sure. Um, and there's been other programs that have been, like, web-based, and that way I can use on there. So I can, like, you know, just, you know, being a kid, like, I would edit, like, you know, silly anime pictures right. or whatnot. But that's such a gateway for kids mm-hmm. who are trying to, like, get past the threshold in the tech world without being mainstream. Absolutely. And, again, using their creativity to still use these other um, programs and learn other programs making them also versatile. Yeah. Um, now bear in mind that programs like or like applications like Photobucket or mm-hmm. the ones that you're like other ones you were talking about these web-based uh, applications. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, bear in mind these sort of free services that are being presented by for-profit businesses mm-hmm. are part of like what we were talking about. There's a uh, before the fundamental difference being that. GIMP is a program that was created by an association of volunteers mm-hmm. who may have incorporated themselves, I believe, incorporated themselves into a business, but they are a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. and uh, their product is free, and their code is accessible and free to develop and tinker to build whatever plugins you please, whatever right. modified versions of the software you please. Photobucket is not opening the back doors to their software and being like, hey, you want to fuck with our filter tools and build your own? Like, go ahead. They're Mm -hmm. not doing that. Instagram's not doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, companies like that. So they're giving you a lot of really powerful toys, but they're not giving you the ability to really take the, the power of digital technology into your own hands. The only place that's really doing that now is the open source community. Mm -hmm. And, um, they it is a it is a place that uh, as we continue to move forward, more and more people are going to need to make themselves aware of how open source technology works and get on board mm-hmm. because these gatekeeper companies, including the software developers, you know, big players with operating systems and things too, like mm-hmm. Google and Apple mm-hmm. um, and uh, Microsoft are really starting to close in. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what is it, the newest version of Microsoft, I think Microsoft 10, is App Store only. Mm. If that is that, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure, but go on. So I think I thought I I heard something somewhere, and please, people of the internet, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I heard that Microsoft 10 is is neither backwards compatible nor allows for the installation of physical <laughs> software media, uh, and everything is App Store based only. Mm-hmm. And that's the way of the future, folks. That's that's where we're at, and Google's going to do the same thing. Apple's doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. we've already moved so much into that in a very wholesale fashion through mm-hmm. the mobile marketplace. And that's really where it's going next. Mm-hmm. The development of the mobile of the mobile marketplace with these with with a, a piece of hardware in your pocket that can't install physical media. Mm-hmm. You have to use an internet connection to download software, which means there has to be some sort of regulator mm-hmm. uh, and and service or services to do that. And so, of course, these companies immediately being the proprietors of the operating system are going to be the principal gatekeepers of the applications that you can and can't use and of who can and can't publish applications to be shared. Mm -hmm. So there is currently, uh, there has been for some time, I don't know much about it, but there's been the development of Ubuntu for mobile devices Mm -hmm. uh, taking place. And I know there's a thriving... Uh, sort of open source community where you can take your, you can take your mobile devices and you can re and you can reinstall them with uh, Ubuntu mm-hmm. for mobile. I have yet to do so. Um, mm-hmm. I have not investigated it in any great detail, but I'm glad to know that that is out there and that uh, people are making that happen okay. and that uh, there is a marketplace that is being built on there that is as free and open source. It is the as the one that exists for um, for Ubuntu uh, yeah. itself. Okay. No, that's that's very informal, and I really appreciate all of that. Um, so we're going to take a different turn here, and can you actually talk about uh, your involvement with your podcast, your self-initiated, self-produced? Sure. Uh, and also give, if you can, while talking about that, kind of give your perspective on what it's like to run things by yourself. Because as I'm talking to you, <laughs> you know that I do everything on my own. Yeah. So just to kind of give some insight for those who yeah, uh, not quite sure how things kind of run. <laughs> or a different interpretation, rather. Right. Well, as I'm sure you're already aware, <clears throat> Self-producing a podcast is a tremendous amount of responsibility, even at its most elementary level. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, everything is a question of scale and commitment. Mm-hmm. For me, and in your own sort of personal standards and vision for the program that you want to create, mm-hmm. right? For me, that manifested through uh, the podcasts that I love to listen to and that I am influenced and that, and that have influenced my uh, uh, my listening experience and my information gathering experience and what I desire mm-hmm. to and how I desire to consume information in that medium okay. and so of course I'm going to use that as my 
experience to create me a, a, a product, a, a, a podcast to share with other people, right? Uh, I'm not going to spend all day listening to shows like On the Media and Radio Lab and, uh, you know, and then shows like Serial and things and like that. <laughs> and, and then not want to create a podcast that isn't heavily produced, heavily scripted, and heavily mm-hmm. edited, mm-hmm. right? Of course, that's what I'm going to do. So that's, for me, walking into self-producing a show mm-hmm. was a very, very heavy decision to make right uh and was something that took me a great deal of time and energy and effort to even decide to do uh let alone to actually step forward and make the commitment okay uh in um so what was like the main things that you um just like with the commitment behind like creating a podcast, I understand when I'm doing this, like, you know, there's the recording, there's the organization with like the booking, there's making sure that you have your programs all like ready, set, go. Um, so I guess the question is, uh, what was, I guess just for content, what was the approach or what was, what, what was the subject matter that you were trying to uh, gather from yours? Well, I was doing a, I, I I say it was because I I have not made this a formal announcement and I don't know that I will, but my podcast, I have decided to shelve my podcast. And that's okay. For good. Oh, yeah. I have no problem with that. Yeah. I'm not making any apologies. We'll talk about shelving projects in a second. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the thing. Like, it happens. People will I, have things and they'll shelve it. And then, yeah, yeah we can I talk about when it's appropriate to shelve it. <laughs> and I, right. Well, and I think it's, and, and this is relevant this is actually relevant to your question about what I did and as a, for a show and what I was trying to accomplish. Ultimately, what I was trying to what I was trying to accomplish was to prove to myself that I could produce something of quality that was, if not better than the sum of my influences, at least greater than the sum of my influences. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I accomplished that and then some over a good, uh, like nearly thirty episodes. Okay. And uh, and I and I found within myself a degree of professionalism and uh, respectability and mm-hmm. and gravity towards the this pro towards this process that has been instrumental for me in terms of transferring to other areas of my life. And that was a big part of the reason ultimately why I did it mm-hmm. uh, was to was to uh, make those things a reality and then hopefully produce something of quality along the way, which I absolutely believe I did. And what I was trying to produce was a news and current events show uh, mm-hmm. as well as like an interview program about topics like history, art, music, literature, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. And so I interviewed a great deal of, of people anywhere from, uh, you know, like musicians and artists, mm-hmm. uh, much like you've interviewed mm-hmm. uh, in that vein, as well as uh, professors, uh, journalists, uh, authors, historians, lawyers, uh, and so on about a variety of subjects, both past and, you know, past and present, mm-hmm. uh, ranging from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> okay. And then, um, no, that's awesome. What, who do you feel was like the most 
like out of like most of your guests like maybe like the top three that you felt like it was the most like influential or at, that had the most impact on yourself uh i think my three my three favorite I think out of all the interviews I did, yeah, my my three favorites in no particular order mm-hmm. are the episode I did with where I interviewed Nihala Balata from the band Sweet Haya. Oh, okay, that's a good band. Yes. Yeah. Uh, she is a longtime friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I met her when Sweet Haya was very new mm-hmm. at one of their shows, mm-hmm. and we became very good and very close friends very quickly. And have been ardent admirers and supporters of each other's work mm-hmm. and lives ever since. Uh, I had always, from the very beginning, when I when I was getting ready to do the show, I knew that I wanted to have her on mm-hmm. at some point uh, because her story is truly remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I finally got to do that and get her story. I had already interviewed her and her band previously mm-hmm. as a journalist and as a blogger. And I wrote, uh, I wrote an article about them. Uh, one of the one of the longer and more popular articles that I ever wrote. Mm-hmm. I think it was about twenty five hundred words. Okay. Uh, and so I and I've just I find their story and I find her fascinating and I finally really got her story down. Mm-hmm. And that was a great that was a great interview. Uh, the conversation was nearly three hours long, mm-hmm. and I had it was very very difficult to trim it down. Yeah. I, I finally got it down to about an hour and 15 minutes and it remains one of my longer episodes but it's like I it's hard it That's was really so hard. difficult because yeah. we talked about so many wonderful powerful passionate beautiful things I got to have a conversation with her on record that of a, of a kind that she had not had with any other person in a media space mm-hmm. before that could only be had with someone like me, but mm-hmm. that needed to be had, and her story, I felt very much needed to be told mm-hmm. about her experiences, uh, being born and raised in Egypt, growing up in France, and then growing up in the United States, and how that's mm-hmm. influenced her life and her music and her perspective on the world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so that's one of my absolute favorite episodes. Um, another, uh, another one is an episode with an author and a historian that I interviewed named Ron Sudalter from... Uh, He's from Virginia, from West Virginia. Okay. I interviewed him about uh, a very famous story called the Battle of Blair Mountain. It's okay. one of the largest armed insurrections on American soil following the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of just like body count, it's mm-hmm. a it was a labor strike that took place in coal country um, over the um, uh, there was an outgrowth of a protest mm-hmm. uh, against the jailing of a bunch of. Uh, of a bunch of miners for their uh, act and protest. Uh, there was a, an attempt to set them free that turned into a that turned into a, a riot that then turned into uh, a full-on like full-scale entrenched uh, like conflict that went on for four, I think about 14 days. Okay. Uh, several hundred people were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, nearly a thousand people were arrested and uh, out of it, uh, that became a, this historic battle that was um, cited often in terms of creating the labor reforms that became the foundation of the modern labor uh, labor movement. Okay, uh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. the 
the the thing that makes that story that makes the story relevant today, other than the ob- obvious historical implications, mm-hmm. is the fact that uh, the site, the historical site that is uh, Blair Mountain, mm-hmm. West Virginia, is under threat of being um, purchased and uh, subsequently leveled through mountaintop drilling by the major coal companies okay. that inhabit the area. And there is a movement that's being uh, uh, that, that's going on there to try to preserve Blair Mountain as a historical site in the National Registry so that mm-hmm. it cannot be touched by the coal companies. And this gentleman, Ron, Sud- Ron Sudalter, had written a couple of articles about it and actually wrote a book about Blair Mountain. Okay. So I interviewed him. And that was one of the best podcasts I ever did because I basically sent him the interview questions about a week beforehand. Nice. And... Oh, I sent him the questions about a week beforehand, and we got on, and we got on, we sat down, and we we got on Skype, and we sat down to start recording, and I was like, so, tell me the story, and, uh, like, I literally asked him two questions over 45 minutes, (laughs) and he just talked. Those are... The rest of the time. I just got to sit back. Yeah. And let him speak, and that is one of the most... One of the most important things that somebody taught me about interviewing people yeah. in, in like journalism or podcasting or media or whatever is like if you're looking for people to interview mm-hmm. about anything, right? Mm-hmm. Find someone who you know is smarter than you and then just ask them a couple questions and let them go. I feel like uh, Right, like in yeah. any, in the subject that you want to talk about, just find somebody who knows something mm-hmm. about it and then just like let them go. Yeah, I feel you know? like the, my favorite interviews have been the ones where it's like I I'm very minimal, um, where I'm giving whoever, like, for example, you, <laughs> like, right now, uh, that they, this is their platform to talk about their experience, right? Yeah. And they're talking about an experience and their interpretation and also in a way that they have knowledge behind it. And it's not my job to question their experience. My job is to give their experience and share it. it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I would, I mean, sometimes I'll joke and whatnot, but I never want to question what they're doing because I feel like at me as a, as a person who's listening, that's, that's in a way slightly disrespectful, but also unless things get really absurd and it's like really like hitting left field, then it's like, okay, maybe I need to moderate this. But other than that, like if everything's just going really smoothly and you're just like, you know, putting it all down yeah. like I have no issue if I'm just like laughing saying okay or or like slightly interrupted well like, my episode with Ron my episode with Ron wasn't so much an interview such as so much as it was a lecture yeah which was awesome yeah like those I are literally great. Those yeah are I mean awesome. I like I said I literally asked him two questions the entire time and the whole thing was able to be broken up into like two nearly symmetrical segments in terms of length talking about like the past and the present Mm -hmm. which was awesome it made like a it made a perfect like 32 minute episode Mm -hmm. with like you know the you know intro narration and like a little break in between and it was like perfect and it (laughs) it, it was the fastest shortest turnaround i've ever done and the content was amazing yeah and it was because this guy knew the subject so well and he had done the pre-interview homework which is awesome he went over the questions and he had them in front of him and and I just I didn't have to say a word and Mm I and it and it was beautiful (laughs) and that episode is like the cleanest most polished most just like rock solid one I I think in my in my whole collection Mm -hmm. and uh and it's so much it's so great to listen to because he's very entertaining and he's very like on top of it it's it's 
it's not just the fact that he knows the shit inside and out, but he knows how to tell the story really well, and he was entertaining yeah. with it, and thoughtful and engaging, and clearly has some opinions and, and stuff on what took place, and wasn't afraid to interject a few of them here and there as well, which mm-hmm. gives it some, which gave the story some real color and yeah. everything. So it just worked out like so, just beautiful synchronicity of our of our uh, experience. And then my favorite, my other favorite. Which is probably my, I, it's it's, it's probably the worst episode I did, but it's probably, oh. but it's also, but it's also my favorite episode is my first episode where I interviewed my dad. Okay. I interviewed my dad about his experiences with labor agitation. He is a labor okay. organizer, okay. and uh, he is on the board of directors and the board of trustees for his union, even in his retirement. Mm-hmm. And he and a handful of other individuals in the early 2000s were responsible for in- installing a union in his company for the first time in its nearly 100-year history. And uh, ever since then, he's been incredibly passionate about labor politics. And that was a... For him, he had always been sort of a centrist kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. And labor politics opened him up to a broader political radicalization and a lot of other broader realizations about life and things like that that have informed a great deal of his worldviews. He's always been a fairly sort of, you know, even-minded, even-handed sort of guy, but this is definitely, you know, where he was wishy-washy about some things. He's <laughs> absolutely outspoken and brash about them now. And, yeah. Uh, and so on and so forth. And that was... And, and he has been a huge role model for me in terms of my own political radicalization mm-hmm. and my uh, desire to engage in those sort of uh, discussions and in to get involved in uh, activism and things like that, which I have done a fair amount of over the last several years and mm-hmm. such. And so I couldn't think of any better guest to mm-hmm. interview for the first show than mm-hmm. the guy who was more than most other people responsible for me feeling compelled to do such a thing in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, and it was great because um, we had a we had a wonderful conversation about that story and then we talked about uh, his life growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's from Missouri and he was uh, he grew up in Missouri in the late uh, in the uh, in the 50s and early 60s Mm -hmm. and so he was uh just going into middle school at the beginning of the civil rights movement wow and uh so he had some uh, he had some things to say yeah and some interesting stories to tell about growing up in especially uh, in missouri mm -hmm, yeah in the in the midwest in the in the early years of the civil rights movement and the post-brown uh, post-Brown Board of Education years, you know, he yeah. was uh, going to integrated schools when that shit was very new, and he told me about things like the pool protests and stuff that took place in his town, and, yeah. uh, and such and such, and sort of the, the he, he didn't have too much, like, hands-on kind of direct experience with a lot of that, because he was a little young, but... Mm-hmm. You know, he does remember the conversations and the attitudes and the and the things that people said. And he remembers, like, you know, yeah, there was, you know, when they talk about phrases like being on the other side of the tracks, that's a very, you know, and what that implies, that implies mm-hmm. something very literal and typically something very racist. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and so on and so forth, and how mm-hmm. there were incidents of, of violence, you know, in his town, especially, like, after he left and things like that. Um, and so that made a fascinating bonus episode that we that I put together. Okay. Uh, was all of the conversations about that, too, so I got some really great... And, and that, that was a great experience to kind of, like, because I don't... I, I never knew... I don't know a lot about my dad's childhood and about mm-hmm. his experiences growing up as a young man or, or, or much that are always pretty tight-lipped about yeah. his history as a great deal of men of his generation are. It's, it's so interesting it was, to talk about that generation. Sorry not to mean to interrupt, but, like, my mom, um, she was born, like, right after the civil rights movement. Not that it was, like, watered down. I don't think that's the term I'm looking for, but more so, like, it was kind of, like, the like the peak has already passed essentially. Yeah. But then you're going um, into the going into the next phase in the exactly. 70s, going from this going from the civil rights movement to black power and yeah, the and the, the the cultural implications of that. Of course, and my mom she she's black and she uh, grew up in like Pacific Grove, which is in Monterey, and I consider that area in a way a, like kind of a bubble because like you're not directly impacted by the racism. However, her grandmother. And her her grandmother and her mom, they had to leave the South and come up to California to leave all of that. And this is, like, during the time where, like, you know, the big, like, popular lynchings such as, like, Emmett Till was going on and all that stuff. So, but what's interesting is that when my, grand, when my grandmother and also my brother and sister's grandmother, when they left, they didn't want her to speak anything of it because they thought that they made it past that. That they, right. they, it's, I think part of it's trauma um, but also they use their foundation of their religion to say, like, we've basically have made it. I mean, sure, there might be other, like, post implications that we're not seeing it. But in comparison to what our experience was in the South, we are fine in California. So we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to say, like, there's any problem with it. Like, we're okay. Um, which is a little dangerous because we still, as, like, as the Black community, we still, we must be proactive uh, with activism and making sure, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, like, a post, like, civil rights movement. Um, but uh, what's interesting is, like, how like that generation tried to keep it like not hidden but they didn't want to talk about it as much you know what i mean so to try to bury the trauma of the past and exactly. start a new life exactly Absolutely. i have i just read an incredible book that i am happy to loan to you please yeah if you're so inclined to read you didn't even tell me the title and i'm ready <laughs> It's called The Warmth of Other Suns. It's okay. by a woman named Isabel Wilkerson. It is <laughs> a... Uh, I'm, 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 if I remember correctly, it is essentially the first concerted effort at an, at an historical account of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. From <clears throat> the era from following the collapse of Reconstruction mm-hmm. to its official in air quotes, and in the Mm mid-1970s, I believe is the official, uh, like I said, the sort of official end. It's about Mm -hmm. a century. Uh, This woman has has attempted to chronicle it through a series of uh, personal narratives of uh, people who made the Great Migration from different generations. Mm Mm-hmm. As well as a uh, a number uh, like hundreds of other personal testimonials, and a great deal of uh, sort of you know facts and uh, historical mm-hmm. research on the physical evidence of the 
transition, mm-hmm. uh, the transitions that took place, mm-hmm. and then in, in an effort to sort of answer the big questions of of the the Great Migration's implications, and on the American experience, not just for uh, not just for African Americans, mm-hmm. but for everyone, mm-hmm. the Great Migration may really. As, particularly between World War One and after World War Two, mm-hmm. really made America the place that it is today culturally, okay. in terms of art, music, literature, science, all of these things that mm-hmm. have that have influenced America to become the sort of cultural place it is today. All the cultural staples, mm-hmm. so many of them, not all of them, but a great many of them, uh, would not have come to pass were not for the great for were not for the Great Migration. There would be no rock and roll weren't for the great migration there would be no hip-hop if it weren't for the great migration mm-hmm. there would be no soul music yeah uh, all of these things there would be mm-hmm. no all of these famous singers that we know and performers and musicians and artists that we know and love mm-hmm. were the products they were the the second sons and second children and the firstborn sons and the firstborn daughters of uh, great gen- of of migrants right of of immigrants who mm-hmm. who quite literally you know fled the South in droves in pursuit of a better life elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't get those people without this experience. And uh, one of the th- and, and one of the things that Wilkerson talks about a great deal in her book is like you said, this desire to want to run from the past and then once landed, put all of it behind you and not pass that trauma on to your children, to the next generation. Right. So, because all you want for them is a better life than the one that you had. But mm-hmm. when you create this historical memory gap, mm-hmm. as they so as as is so often said, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, these communities have evolved in this post-racial era, quote unquote. But mm-hmm. racism has evolved in this post-racial era too, mm-hmm. and. It, and, and obviously continues to you know, permeate just about every aspect of our yeah. society. And there is so many, I can only imagine that if, if the, that, that if that generation, if that had been felt more compelled to mm-hmm. share the lessons of their experience mm-hmm. in ways that were healthy and mm-hmm. functional, because it's not like that didn't happen. Right. But it's like the whole, you know, it's the whole story of like, oh, well, you know, at least you didn't grow up and watch all your friends get lynched, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, a, you know, it's like, oh, you think you've got it bad. That's not imparting lessons. That's mm-hmm. imparting judgment. Mm-hmm. And, but that happens all the time across cultures, too. And mm-hmm. that, that experience, I'm sure, is not unique among uh, among black elders with their with their children and with their children's children. So mm-hmm. um, I can only imagine how things might have might be different today. Yeah, had the knowledge and experience been imparted in a, uh, earlier on, but this book is an effort, uh, among other things, to try to do that right. as well. So uh, I can't recommend it enough, and I'm going to loan you my copy when you leave. Awesome, because it'll blow you away. It won a Pulitzer Prize when it was published, and uh, I can see why. I read the audiobook, mm-hmm. or I listened to the audiobook, I should say, <laughs> and about halfway through the audiobook, I was like, I must buy a physical copy, mm-hmm. and I and uh, and so I did, and I've mm-hmm. got a, a handful of passages marked in it and stuff too that I found particularly relevant and I'm sure you will too so yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense to me I've always like constructed all of these like 
self theories and then after thinking of like theories on my own like i look it up later um i've also talked to like my aunts about it and they will tell me like basically they'll say like oh yeah i tried to go down south to kind of revisit my roots and then your grandmother got mad (laughs) she'll say there is no business for you in the south and that's basically like her one line of saying don't you dare um but not don't you dare to just to hide it just to protect them um so uh we are kind of getting into some closing areas of this episode um now uh with the podcast i do talk about a little bit of dirty things um and i did mention earlier that we actually bonded over magic Uh (laughs) so uh just as a heads up for those who are listening i'm not an experienced magic player i've recently kind of got into it um but also i've always seen this game like trickle around like my childhood but my first impressions of it fun story is that when i got my first set of cards i was in middle school didn't know what to do with them said this is bullshit it's not Yu-Gi-Oh, and i threw the cards away (laughs) so you see you see what's up haters she's not some fake gamer girl so y'all can just (laughs) fuck off okay i just no one taught me how to play it so i thought you know if you don't know what it is and it just you don't know how to do like use it it's useless right so (laughs) but now i see it a lot in my life now and so uh randall and i we we uh rebonded at a game night and he kind of taught me some of the basics of the game uh side note sorry cash (laughs) but but, uh i got there first i know he got there first um and uh he kind of taught me how it went so what what got you into magic or magic the gathering well i uh i also got into it I didn't get into it in middle school because it wasn't, uh, here, I'm going to betray my age again. The Magic <laughs> the Gathering had not been invented when I was in middle school. Uh, it didn't come out, it came out, I, I, I want to say it was the, my sophomore year. Okay. My sophomore year of high school, I believe, uh, okay. was when Magic the Gathering came out. And it was an effort to, cap- to uh, capitalize on nascent Pokemon craze that was just starting to make its way into the United States after being huge in Japan, a huge success, the the whole trading card game concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, was you know, Wizards of the Coast, they got their firstest with the mostest to your stateside. And Magic the Gathering was awesome. And me and all my friends got hooked. We were all a bunch of D&D nerds already. And so we loved fantasy games and, mm-hmm. and role-playing. We're all into video games and shit, too. So it was only natural that when this game... I mean, this game was initially marketed to people just like us. Mm-hmm. That's the, the thing about Magic that that is... And, and about nerdy things in general, too, is that... All the nerdy things that people sort of take for granted today, I used to stick my ass beat over 25 years ago. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but the but the markets were beginning. It was just around this time that things were beginning to like change in that regard, mm-hmm. you know. And so, but when Magic the Gathering was first introduced, it was marketed pretty strictly to geeks. It was within the same sphere as all mm-hmm. the like all the D and D nerds that you you. You wouldn't find the cards outside of like game and hobby shops or comic book stores or things like that. Yeah. You know, where now you can buy 15 different collectible card games at Target. Yeah. You know, easily. And yeah. and can people do of all ages. And you see kids as young as like, you know, four and five playing games like Yu-Gi-Oh! and stuff now. Mm-hmm. And, and that was inconceivable when, when I was starting to play. So 
it was uh, it was a pretty <laughs> inconceivable. Absolutely, and so it was like a you know, uh, it was a thing that you know you you didn't you didn't talk about it. You just you outside of like the people that you played with. Yeah. But the people that I played with and myself, we were fervent fervent addicts. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> it fun game. how like things like that we were like super hush hush and now it's like more embraced as of like yeah. as, as it ages. I used to be mad about that because <laughs> you know you always get mad about like the thing that you think is cool and then when yeah. everybody thinks it's cool especially like I said when you used to get your ass beat over it uh, it's it's hard sometimes not to carry a grudge but ultimately yeah. I'm glad that I'm glad that gaming and and and, 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 and stuff more broadly has just become popular and more accepted among like older folks again yeah. and stuff too because it's great it's a thing that brings people together and mm -hmm. you can have some laughs and you can have some beers and you can like unplug your tv or unplug your xbox mm -hmm. and sit down face to face and, and have a good time with some physical in some in some neat space yeah you know yeah it's another social avenue um i have also yeah. learned that again with magic the gathering or any other card games or video games it actually really activates a sense of um strategy uh, it builds on your strategy but it also builds on on competition and it also builds on like making sure that you can problem solve yeah. um, and these are things that you know parents forget that th what these games do is it really exercises your brain such as that and then so with introducing these games now it's like oh there is a benefit Absolutely. <laughs> there is a benefit it's yeah. not like my kid just like droning or being a zombie over this game there's right. actually some beneficial aspects well, and not just games. your and, and not just your not just your eight-year-old but like your 14 year old yeah you know, more importantly, like mm -hmm. it's it's easy to get little kids to play games, but there starts to become this point where like playing board games and stuff, and it still happens now with little kids, kids too, when you grow up and you start to, especially in like in that, you know, weird hellish middle school phase where mm -hmm. it's just like everything that you, that you used to like is, is no longer cool, especially mm -hmm. because most of it came from your parents and you hate your parents for everything they <laughs> do. Yeah. And you want to distance yourself from them and, and try to appeal to all the little monsters that you're surrounded with in the gulag that is your middle school experience. <laughs> and so that is, but that is the point where, that is a point where these markets have been able to like insert themselves in with like the card games and things to kind of keep that mm -hmm. experience going for kids. And I think that's, I think that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm glad to see it because then it keeps it, you know, it, and now and then they get through it in, into high school and it like, you know, this is stuff that like builds friendships and communities and connections. And it's like, what's bad about that? Right. It's, Not at all. You know, there, there was such a stigma for that for me still when I was in middle school and even in high school to a certain extent. So I kept my Magic the Gathering experience, like I said, pretty close to the vest. Like, I did most of my other gaming stuff, but my friends and I were definitely really into it. There was a round table pizza like, around the corner from us. They used to host tournaments and game nights like every week, and so we mm -hmm. would always end up going there and um, and uh, playing all the time and stuff until the until some of the kids at, at, until some of the kids in school found out about the place and blew up the spot with some bullshit. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, like so, yeah, just yeah. like you know, just like jocks and fucking stupid like you know and, and just stupid kids would just fucking come and, and or they'd be <laughs> nearby and like there because it was in a shopping center where there's a Carl's Jr. and a Taco Bell and there's restaurants and stores and stuff and so mm -hmm. it happened to like see you know and then it happened to see us and then all of a sudden figured out like oh that's where they all hang out right and yeah it's terrible right kind of when shit. 
like there's groups of people who no matter where you manifest your happiness they're they're willing to destroy it but usually you know i'm a firm believer in karma (laughs) so hopefully like you know those people will self-reflect later on that that's not a fun way to handle other groups of people who you don't feel like are right. welcome. Um, so I got into it again. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Sorry, no, please. Oh, I was going to say, like, in terms of playing more recently, like I got into it um, again through more recently. I finally found somebody to play with through a mutual our mutual friend uh, Juanita, and uh, <laughs> and then we. Um, sorry, go on. Oh, it's okay. No, I just, like, more recently, like, I, I, I picked up some cards a little while ago, and then I didn't have anybody to play with for a bit. And then uh, our mutual friend, Juanita, mm-hmm. uh, asked me if I wanted to play with her, well, uh, play with her sometime. She mm-hmm. played. And then we started playing for a while. And then that's the game night where, like, I met you, mm-hmm. uh, where I got reacquainted with you. Yeah. I actually met both you guys here, I think, yeah. on the same night. I met you. Actually. <laughs> no, I met you a couple times before. So I met okay. you at a uh, Sweet Haya and also the Leak concert. Uh, there was like a two concert mashup, and I met you there. Was that at Art Boutique? Mm-hmm. Okay, it was at the Art Boutique, and I remember you being like the tall guy in the back, just really enjoying yourself, and you were super social. Uh, and so I was like, oh, he seems pretty cool, but I didn't make the connection of like uh, when I met you again, because I met you again here. Yeah. Um, and then I met you again <laughs> at the game night. Yeah. So uh, it's just really fun, like how like our universes just keep like crossing uh or a pass keep crossing so i just figured like okay this guy's chill like he's not like like just like hanging around being a weirdo not he's, a predator yeah yeah exactly um but yeah no he, you seem like good people and you are um so anyway uh this is the part where i'm going to actually reintroduce you because you didn't really introduce yourself at the beginning okay. so um again i Thank you for listening to Don't Cast and Drive. This is your speaker lady, uh, Veronica Tyler Christie, um, usually sometimes V. And here I have with me Mr. Randall. <laughs> Randall Aubrey. Aubrey? Did yeah. I say it right? Yes. Yes. That's okay. Right. I get, I'm scared to say Audrey. So. <laughs> yeah. Randall Aubrey. And then um, how can people find you? How can people find me? Well, uh, I'm in all the usual places on the internet. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc., etc. Uh, the main, I guess, the main place if you want to find. Uh, see, I'm. <laughs> it's tough because I'm like I'm not really doing anything right now. But I guess if you want to find what I've done, that's um, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, if you want to, I'm not doing anything publicly right now. But if you want to find the things that I've done, you can go to my website, which is hundredproofpink.blogspot.com and that's the number that's the number 100 not the word hundredproofpink.blogspot.com that's my website pink elephants where you'll find my podcast and uh, the and and all my previous blog posts of which I think there's like around 300 or so okay and uh, and uh, that's yeah that's about it that's that's the main place okay Um, not really doing anything else outside of that I mean, again, like our our whole internet life is like you can find things archived, and yeah. like so, if you guys want to find out like his your track record, <laughs> his just his like his old projects and whatnot, yeah, please go to his blog spot and just like you know take a listen, hear what he has to say. I feel like this was a very well informed uh, interview. Yeah. So thank you, Randall. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So I think that's about it for today. Thank you very much. This has been a delightful conversation.
flattered to. This is the first time I've ever been interviewed by somebody for a podcast, so uh, I'm very I'm very flattered by that. As someone who has spent a great deal of time trying to wrangle others into the studio, it's very nice to be on the other side and have somebody ask me some questions for once, because... You know, yeah, I got a few thoughts on a few things. Yeah, I feel like this won't be our last interview. <laughs> I certainly hope not. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Take it easy. Bye.